and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It might be best today to be in your the Bibles in your chairs. 233 is the page number, Numbers chapter 16. This is a long section. We'll be hitting highlights from it. We're in the midst of our series. 233 is the page number. We're in the midst of our series about um, Old Testament warnings for the New Testament Christians. So we've looked at a number of warnings, and we'll review those while you're finding your page number 233. Some of those warnings included warnings against greed. Now, greed is kind of an interesting sin in that it's not always universally identified. It's kind of a relative sin. And what I mean by that is um, you can't always tell if someone's being greedy or not. If you have someone who earns, say, $2,000 a month and they want $2,200 a month, do we know if that's greed or not? What happens if someone earns $10,000 a month and they want $12,000 a month? Which person would you say is being greedy? Can you really say? Maybe the one was that uh, promised in contract $12,000 a month for their inherently dangerous work, and they're not actually being greedy. They're just saying, this is what is owed me. And the other one was promised $2,000 a month, and instead they're not satisfied which with what they already agreed upon. So you can't really tell because greed is something in the heart. I mean, it's very obvious when you're talking about like Greedy Smurf, we said, or Scrooge McDuck or Scrooge. These are greedy people just by their name. But generally, greed is hard to identify. We said that's a warning. It's an internal sin um, against contentment for what God has given you. So we had that's a warning. Don't do that. That's not good. Our second one last week was stubbornness. Now, stubbornness, I think, is much more clear. Can you think of the word stubborn in a good way? Can anyone think of a sentence? Use it in a sentence that means positive things. I have a stubborn child, someone might say. You say, oh, that's great. I have a stubborn boss. Is that good? A stubborn leader, a stubborn mule, a stubborn dog, a stubborn cold. Can you think of using the word stubborn in a positive way? In the same way, what stubborn is, why it, doesn't, it isn't good, is because you're holding on to your idea of something or your view despite better evidence that says you should change. And what happened in the story that we looked at with Jeremiah is he said, listen, here is God's word. And the people said, we're not going to listen to it despite coming from God. That's being stubborn. Now, Vicar, I think, made a good identification. Is holding on to something very um, closely and not yielding from that always bad? He used examples of being at parties and things like that, underage drinking or something. That's not bad to hold to your values, but we use as a culture different words. Uh, we'd use um, like unyielding. That's not always a bad connotation. They have an unyielding defense, we might say in sports. That's a good defense, correct? That's not bad. We don't say a stubborn defense. Uh, we don't say an obstinate defense. We say that it's an unyielding defense. Or even a better word, which he used, was resolute. Because we see that said about Jesus in, the, um, in our Bible translation. It says, resolutely, Jesus was in Jericho at the time, resolutely turned towards Jerusalem so that he could walk the way of salvation. Same thing, he's committed to something. He's not willing to waver from that. But one is wavering or holding to God's will and stubbornness is holding to your own sinful will. Today we talk about rebellion. Rebellion is a, boy, uh, rebellion is a fascinating thing. So think in your head, we're going to go and I'll talk about how I think our culture views rebellion. But do we see rebellion as an inherently bad thing in our culture? Just kind of think on that for a while. When you hear about someone rebelling or going against the norm or going against convention, do you think that inherently as a sinful thing? Stubbornness we know is bad. 
Greed, when identified, is universal. Everyone, if they recognize greed, they say that's bad. Bernie Madoff, there aren't too many people on the planet going, oh, that, that probably wasn't so bad. No, that's bad. People recognize that. We said Aiken, who struggled with greed, knew greed was wrong, but the problem was he didn't put it next to his own sin. So think about that. Is rebellion necessarily bad in our, cultural's eye, our cultural eye? And then we'll talk about how God talks about it. So we're in Numbers chapter 16. And we'll start at verse 1. Korah. Okay. Uh, Korah is the leader of this rebellion. You got to hear some of the end results. And the time frame is, remember they were in Egypt, and God had taken them over the Red Sea, and now they're supposed to go directly into the Promised Land. But what's holding it up? They sent 12 spies in. They say, you scan this area out and say, is it ready for us to go into? Now, of the 12, how many said they should enter? You may know this, Joshua and Caleb. Two. The other 10 said, we should not go in there. We look like grasshoppers. These people are huge. So the people go, uh, we're going to go with the grasshopper opinion. So God is so angry, he says, everybody here, 20 years and older, imagine our congregation, we're going to go into a new building. Okay, I'll just come up with an illustration. Uh, we've got a brand new church building, except we know there's big bills or something that go with it. But God says he will take care of us. God's talking to us directly. This doesn't currently happen. Um, but he says we should go into that new building. And people check it out and they go, we think we can do it. It'll be wonderful. It's awesome. However, the bills are going to be pretty huge. But we have God's promise. So God says, for you who do not trust me, because he gave them that direct promise, I will give you this land. Everyone here, 20 years and older, will not enter that church ever. It would just sit there, this giant, gorgeous building, for 40 years, he says, until you all die. It's kind of a sobering judgment. And we said, how many funerals a day? 14,000 days in a row, if you just kind of average it out, there'd be 80 funerals a day to kill off 2 million people or whatever it would be, 12, uh, 1.2 million people. That's a lot of funerals. And we said if they're good Jews and they, only, they don't die on the Sabbath day, now you're up to 100 funerals a day. It's pretty epic. So we have all these, um, this judgment coming on, and then they decide, we don't like this. So God's not going to let us into, so we form a mob, the, the 20-somethings and older, and say, this is not right. God said we should be in this new church. We're going to go. After God just told you, you're not going to go. So they form up a band. This is exactly what the Israelites did. They form up a band of people and said, we are going to enter the promised land. And they go and they just get whooped. And God was not with them. They get obliterated and they never attempt it again. So ironically, they rebel against God and they don't listen to go into the promised land. And then when God says you can't go, they decide to go. This should be a lesson for us. Does God ever use reverse psychology? No. So if God says you should not do something, you don't do it. If God says you should do something, you should do it. God says you should be in church. That's not like a play right there to get you to not go to church. God is saying you should be here. This is good. So Korah is the leader of this rebellion. They're in the midst of this 40-year journey. And he's a Levite, which means he works in the temple, but he's not the priest. So it would be like he's one of the staff members, but he's not the pastor kind of deal. He works. God has called him to a special deal. They don't have a city. But he said, you get to work with the special holy things of God. Korah does not like this. He thinks, hey, we're all priests. We should all have this opportunity. So he complains to Moses and Aaron. And he comes and says, all people, you guys put yourselves up in this position of authority as priests, and you don't deserve that position. So, as you heard, 
Moses says, let's have a little throwdown to see who's right. We'll just do this. You get your 250 guys together. We'll show up. And the most holy thing you could do, only the priests would do, is be offer incense. In fact, if you did this in a, a sinful way, um, Aaron's sons did this. It said they offered strange fire. That's what the Hebrew says, strange or unusual fire. What happened to them? They're dead. They came before God in this most holy thing and offered strange fire, it says, an improper way, and God killed them. So this is a pretty big deal. So rather than say, okay, let's just start with the first priestly duties, like blessings or something like that, he goes, let's go right to the top. You get your incense, 250 censers and incense. I'll get my guy, Aaron, and we'll just see which one God accepts. So they gather everybody up. This would be like this. Okay, let's go check out this new promised land. So let's, which one is really the priest? 250 are here, and Aaron is on the other side. And what happens is what we discover. Moses realizes that the results are not going to be good for the defiant people. So he falls face down, and he said to Korah, this is verse 4, that's why you have your Bibles open. Then he said to Korah on all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. This is his throwdown. And we will have the person come near him. The man he chooses will ca uh, cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses, they have these bronze censers, will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. So this is his warning. He knows what's going to happen. Moses said to Korah, now listen. You Levites, isn't it enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the community and minister to them? That's a pretty big privilege. Of all the people of Israel, who had this special privilege? One tribe. And it wasn't enough. You read that, at, we'll talk about rebellion, the ultimate rebel is Satan, but you get that same implication. The Bible seems to, if you read it, understand that Satan was a powerful angel, had great responsibility, but that, what was the problem, was not enough. He wanted more. The same thing with the people, of the Levite people. He separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. I think he makes an important distinction. That's why I wanted to look at this section. Uh, can you rebel against the authorities in your life without rebelling against the Lord? Is that even possible? I'll give you some examples. Um, your teacher. You rebel against your teacher, you make fun of them or make fun of her in class, you goof around with your friends. And you say, well, they're not prepared when they come to class, that's the only reason why class management is poor. Are you rebelling against just your teacher, or are you rebelling against the Lord who put that teacher there? The Lord. You say, well, I'm just working the angles on my taxes. Tax season's coming up. I'm just working the angles here. Can you rebel against the government God has established without rebelling against the Lord? In fact, by definition, can you commit any sin without rebelling directly against God? 
we hear about that. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, as the word it uses, nor can it do so. So your sinful self cannot follow God's law without being tuned. This is exactly what happened. So he gives them this great warning. Then Moses summoned death. Um, sorry. And who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? So then Moses, verse 12, summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we won't even come. So this is a separate rebellion. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of this land flowing with milk and honey? You've left us in this old church, and we can't even go into the new church, is what he's saying, and kill us in the desert. And now you also want the Lord to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Blah, 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 blah. So the next day comes. The morning shows up. 250 men with their censers are ready to go before the Lord. And the sons of Korah and Dathan and Abiram are there. And they say, here's the, here's the real test. If these civil rebels are with God, they'll just die uh, a natural death. It'll be fine. However, if they are working against God, we will see an unnatural thing, something that's very unusual. In fact, the earth will open up and swallow them. Okay, agreed upon? Everyone's like, okay, we're in. I mean, when you, wouldn't you be a little worried at that point when you're a rebel? So this happens, they say, stand away from the sons of Korah, and the earth opens up and swallows the people completely, all these rebels. And fire comes out. It says the glory of the Lord, the kavod out of Nai, and burns to death 250 of these guys holding unlawful fire. What's strange to me, and we'll get to the fire aspect of it, what's strange to me, and that's where we talk about our culture. The whole Israelite assembly, assembly sort of came as moral support. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to say, step away from the sons of Korah. These aren't just the unbelieving rebe rebels that show up. The Israelite community comes up to see, this, to see what happens and who wants. We all like fireworks show, and we want to see what's going to happen. Is the earth really going to open up? We want to witness this. Do we as a culture appreciate rebels, or do we recognize that that is wrong? James Dean. We like this guy and he doesn't even have a cause. Luke Skywalker. Is he with the Empire or is he a rebel? I think as a culture, we part of it's because of our roots. Why do we have English-speaking America? You say you want a revolution. Right? The only reason we are here talking English in this country is because we revolted against the motherland. The Boston Tea Party, is that something people are like, can you believe that ever happened? We're like, unlawful taxes, that's got to stop. We love this idea of rebellion. It's in our songs. We're not going to take it. No, tell me you can't finish that. And how many of the people played that I, or, or the song, Smoking in the Boys' Room, or whatever song you grew up with, Fight for Your Right to Party. I mean, I can list all of them that they all date me. But just about every song talks about this idea of rebellion. This is a good thing. We've got to do it. And it's not only against the government. Fight the government and the oppression that they do. This is a good thing. What about defying convention? What products do you like? 
We like the ones that swim against the stream, Macintosh computers, or you like Dyson vacuums. I mean, he makes a big deal about that. Everyone thought this way, but that's reduced suction. Wait till you see the Dyson. I defied convention. And you go against all these ideas that rebellion is good. I looked on the internet. How many pages of quotes can I find for rebellion? Four pages. Do you think if I typed in any other country besides China, I could find four pages on conformity? I mean, do anyone know any sweet conforming quotes? Anybody? No. No. Because we like rebellion. We like the idea that this advances society. This helps us. But is this always good? Think outside the bun. The advertisers understand that this is who Americans are. Americans are. We like individuality. We like to be our own boss. We like to think of our own way. I'll ask you a question. How many of you think of yourselves as renegades that defy the odds and think differently than the, the uh, natural world and fight the world? Raise your hand. See, that's a test, because if you're really a renegade, you want to listen when I said raise your hand. So that was so now I have caught you all. I would guess 90% of you, this is just a guess, at least 80% would can think of yourself on some level as someone who rebels a little bit. If the rules don't make sense, I'm not going to follow them. I'm going to go my own way, blaze my own trail, because you're American. But what does God have to say? The people came out in droves because I think this argument of Korah and this argument of these other guys made sense. They said, you know what? That isn't right that you should stand before us, and we all want to see what happens. And they witness 250 people get burned, and the earth open up and swallow them. This is what's interesting, even more interesting. If that happened, <laughs> just imagine our scenario with the church. We had 10 people who said, we should be in this, absolutely. They went out there, the earth swallowed them up. Would that kind of quell, you think, that a rebellion? Would that put it on kind of a low end? Would there be anyone else in line? We'd put like caution tape around, do not walk on this sidewalk, especially when you define. You'd think that would stop sin. That would stop rebellion. How long do you think it would happen in the Israelite world? What would be your gut? I think like a years. If I had an uncle that got swallowed up by the earth after defying God, I don't think, I think I'd avoid that sin. It lasted 24 hours. The next day, this is longer, we're not going to, I'll just give you a summary. The next day, the people come and they're angry. And they said, you have killed these men, Moses and, Abraham, uh, and Aaron. It's your fault. It's your fault. You're the ones who have did this. You do not deserve to lead this nation. 24 hours later, a plague comes. And God sends a plague. 14,000 people die the next day. The only thing that stops the people and makes their eyes light up is that each tribe laid out a staff. And they said, put out your dead staff, your wood staff, and whatever one blooms, or whatever one blot, uh, grows, is the one who is the true leader of God. They lay out the staffs and they wash, and Aaron's not only grows um, a leaf, but it blooms and bears fruit. I mean, that's pretty quick from a dead staff. And the people are amazed, and they shake with fear. And that staff actually goes into the Ark of the Covenant. That's how it ends up in there. So, can the threat of punishment ever change hearts? It should. It should. This threat should change us, but does it? How many of you have been picked up for speeding or ticketed for speeding more than once? 
did the threat of punishment work? How many of you had more than one detention in your school career? If you're next to your kids, just give me a wink. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Why are you looking at your husband? I mean, is this what? <laughs> I was perfect, but my husband over here. <laughs> How many of you have problems with judging? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right, what, this, what we're talking about is the threat of punishment should curb action. Shouldn't it? Once you find out, there should only be like one person who gets busted for taxes, and that's it ever, because the threat of punishment would stop us all. There should be only one person on the whole planet who gets picked up for speeding because it would stop us all. There should be only one person who uh, gets put in prison for murder or theft or all these other pyramid schemes because it should stop us all, but the threat of punishment does not change hearts. You can threaten teens. You can threaten anybody. You're off the basketball team if you drink during season. That was when I grew up. But did Kibil still do it? Yeah. What can change hearts? Only the gospel. Only repentance. Only recognizing that the rebellion you do, messing with your taxes, the dishonor you give to your boss, the dishonor you give to your parents, the dishonor you give to people in authority, is a sin before God. What did Aaron, uh, what did Moses say? You've sinned against the Lord. Not just that person, you're sinning against God. And the only thing that changes that heart is not some threat out there, but a recognition that I have sinned against the holy God and dear God, I'm sorry. I have not lived the way I should live. I have had a rebellious heart that wants to blaze my own trail even when your law says something else. Every sin needs to be confessed every single day when repentance has multiple parts. I am wrong. I trust that Jesus has paid for this. God, change me. Help me conform to your will. They get done. <laughs> 24 hours later, 14,000 people are died. But that's just before. Now you can look in your service folder if you want. Because we get to an important section. Uh, verse 36. This is before the fire. Um, this is before, I mean, the 14,000 people died. 250 men had just gotten burned up, and they used bronze censers. And they presented these before the Lord. And normally, what would you do if someone used something in defiance? You'd get rid of it. you get rid of it. Um, but this is what the Lord does, and I think this is a picture, an illustration of what he does with us. Uh, tell Eliezer, verse 37, the son of Aaron the priest, to take the censers out of the smoldering remains and scatter the coals some distance away. For the censers are holy, I mean set apart for something special. The censers are the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they are presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eliezer the priest collected the bronze censers, brought them to those who had been burned up, and he had them hammered into the, out to overlay the altar, as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except the descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. What happened with this thing that was used for sin? It got used for good, didn't it? 
Imagine our altar now, after this rebellion, and all the things the people used got put on the altar and used for that altar. Every day you'd be reminded of this. And isn't that similar? And that's all I'm saying. Isn't that similar to what God has done with you? Have your hands been used for sin? Has your mind been used for sin? Has it been used to rebel against God again and again and again? But what has Christ done with his law? He's hammered you into something good. It says it in a different way in Scripture. It says you're refined with fire. Your sins have been burned up with a Savior who is resolute in his mission, who said absolutely this is the way we can go. A Savior who was sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane hoping the plan would change, but when it didn't, he said, I'm willing to walk that walk. You're set aside for something special, not because you chose to be, but because your leader wanted you and he took the loss at his expense. He hammered you into something special. That's your life of sanctification. That's a word that means made holy. The same thing. You have been made holy to do something special with your life. And you might be thinking in the back of your mind, I grew up this way. This is my family. My family always rebelled. Uh, my dad never went to church. My dad had a drinking problem. My parents did this. They were gossipers. Um, they weren't very kind to me. That's why I'm not kind to my kids. They quit parenting me when I was eight. That's why I let my kids do the parenting at eight. You might be thinking all these things. And you might be thinking that about the sons of Korah. We hear the word Korah come up one other time in Scripture. It says the families and tents were swallowed up, but not all of them. If you read the Psalms all the way through, 11 separate times you would see Psalms dedicated to a group of men known as the sons of Korah, who were leaders in the church who led musicians. They didn't follow what their relatives said. They didn't follow probably what their dad said or their uncle said. They said, you know what, that's not right, we're going to back off. You have an opportunity set apart as a holy people to say, I don't care what your past is, but right now this is who I am, and I don't want to rebel against the Lord. Instead, I want to submit to his ways. If you want to rebel, rebel against the world, a world that says sin is okay, rebel against the world that says God doesn't matter, rebel against them and say, I'm aligning myself right here with God. Because on Judgment Day, when God collects you, he's going to say, I've set you aside for something special. Now live like someone who's special. Amen.